Hi, and welcome to Harajuku Data Lake. My name is Morris, and today we have our second special guest of season two. Hi, my name's Courtney Mitchell. I'm a friend of Morris's. We've known each other since we were in our late teens. We actually met one of my first days at college.、Uh, I was going to a meeting of the college gay club, and I was walking up the steps to the gay house behind the skinny、oh、boy from Indiana, which turned out to be Morris. Oh my god, I can't, I can't believe you remember that, but I definitely remember that gay house because we ended up actually living there together. It was, it was less of a gay house and more of a lesbian house. <laughs> It's true. Morris was like one of the two token gay men. <laughs> okay, so, so,、uh, so you are actually also not a correspondent from Japan. So I just want to ask you a little bit more about yourself. So, what are you up to? Where are you living? Where are you from? Well, Morris and I went to college together、uh, in Indiana. Uh, now I'm living in Austin, Texas, in the United States,、um, but I'm actually completing a doctorate in American Studies from Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. So I've lived、uh, for a bit here in the, what's called the South and or Southwest. And then also I've spent several years in the Midwest, in Indiana, in Ohio,、uh, in Michigan for a little bit as well. And I'm working on a dissertation right now that's about、um, it's about ideology, which is one of those big, vague words、mm. that everyone kind of knows what it means, but no one actually knows what it means. <laughs> what, what does ideology mean? When I teach it to freshmen in my Intro to American Studies class, the way I define it is the stories we tell ourselves about how power works. So, the stories、mm. we have about why some people are homeless, the stories we have about why some people are president. <laughs> why are some people president? <laughs> Usually、uh, because they have、uh, a lot of money and a lot of connections and a lot of cultural capital and social capital, and because they work really well in our media culture. I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff being written and thought about in terms of Trump as really just a TV celebrity. I mean, that's kind of why Reagan got elected, too. He's sort of an updated Reagan, right? That、hmm. we had a movie star who everyone loved because he was in that cute movie with the monkey. And then Bush got elected because he was that movie star's vice president. And then Bush, too, got elected because he was that movie star's vice president's kid. And then we're <laughs> moving on up to that guy that was on The Apprentice got elected because people like reality TV. Huh. Okay, th- this, there's so much more I want to dive into there. <laughs> like, <laughs> like wh- what happened in the Reagan presidency? And. Um, would the Kardashians be better presidents than our current president? But,、uh, but I think that's, that's taking us a little bit too far off. So、uh, I kind of want to, like, a lot of what we talk about on Harajuku Data Lake is technology. And a lot of technology, we think, we think of Silicon Valley and we think of America and we think of American culture as sort of the, the technological center. And well, a lot of what we do with Harajuku Data Lake is we take that center abroad. So we are,、uh, when it's me and Sergio, It's an American and a Spanish guy meeting in Tokyo to talk about this engineering culture that a lot of it flows out of Silicon Valley. And with Courtney, I really want to hear what is going on in America. So, so you're, you're doing your dissertation in American studies. Maybe we、mm-hmm. could just start with that. What's going on in America today? Um, I love being able to speak about that as a scholar of American studies because a lot of folks don't really know what American studies is. So there's this、mm. idea that it's just like, yay, America. I want, it, I want to study it because I love it so much. And I don't think that there's not,、um, 
it's not necessarily that folks are unpatriotic or hate America, but it's folks that are very interested in critiques of power. And the U.S. is really at the center of a lot of the global structures of power that are vital to discuss right now. Mm. And so what's going on in America right now, I think as a scholar of American studies, it seems very clear cut to think about how structures of race and class that have been kind of building and forming and coalescing for the last, I would say the Mm. last 20 years especially, are kind of erupting. Mm. There was a movement in kind of the 90s in the Clinton era toward multiculturalism, this idea of Mm. embracing diversity and that folks of all different backgrounds are valued. And a lot of it was sort of... um, It was almost kind of like a cultural reconstruction, trying to recover from the backlash against the civil rights movement and think about race in a new way. But the major fault with this viewpoint is that when you kind of say, yay, everyone's great and everyone's valuable, Mm. you you have this sort of amnesia about why we have to say that and amnesia about the gross inequalities in the U.S. Um, so by, t- by talking about multicultur- multiculturalism, we actually end up talking less about different culture within the U.S. Yes, exactly. And we talk, we talk about it out of context. And context is always so profoundly important, especially when talking mm. about race in the U.S. Um, I think there's this really vital need to acknowledge always acknowledge the history of slavery, which makes me sound like, Mm. I don't know. It's funny. Speaking about aesthetics, it's like the way that aesthetics work right now. If you you want to bring up histories of inequality and race in the U.S., people automatically kind of put you either in the camp of a conspiracy theorist or of a tree-hugging liberal, or there's all these different ways you Mm. get painted when in reality, you're just sort of acknowledging the objective structures that shape economics and human interaction in the U.S. today. Mm. Hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> what, what do I say? Uh, yeah, I, I'm remind as soon as we start to talk about uh, topics like race, I'm immediately re- reminded of uh, one of my favorite podcasts, which is um, Accidental Tech Podcast with uh, John Syracuse and Marco Arment and Casey Liss. And one of the best episodes that they ever did was when these three white middle-aged American guys decided that they had to have a conversation about gender. And, you know, John Syracuse was really the person pushing that. And his other two co-hosts did not want to talk about gender because uh, especially Casey, if I remember, was very reluctant to talk about gender because he, he was so worried that he would say something wrong. And you know, one of the first questions that John presented was, well, you know, how many women do you have working in your office? And uh, I think Casey said something along the lines of, oh, like, well, we have a few a few girls in the um, whatever. And, you know, he, he didn't mean it, but, you know, John Syracuse's oops. point... Yeah, well, oops, but uh, <laughs> I, I think John Syracuse's point there was that, yes, they know they are going to say something that they... something wrong, something that they didn't intend to come off the way that it came off. They didn't choose the the perfect words. They didn't express what they were trying to say as eloquently as they could. But they did have this entire show about gender. And by simply talking about gender and not being afraid of the topic of gender, they actually learned a lot and they got a lot of listener comments. So th- that's why... You know, How Did You Good Data Lake is definitely not a political podcast, but it's a podcast that deals with engineers in the real world. And this is the real world that affects us. And it's the, it's the real world that we live in. So 
it's a real world that we kind of have to talk about. And that's a real world that includes, yes, the history of slavery. I love that. Thank you, Morris. That's so, yeah, that's exactly right. And it's, um, I think it's really important to make spaces where you can talk about things honestly and say things that are quote unquote wrong because the wrong things really expose the fault lines of how we think about things in a real way. And if we don't start dismantling them and thinking about, I mean, this is classic engineering, actually, like look at a problem, take it apart into its basic components, inspect each component, figure out where the flaws are, where the misinformation is, and then try to reconstruct it in a way that's more useful or more practical or more functional. Um, You can use that approach for basically anything, including talking about histories of race and racism. Wow. Okay. But this is actually not the podcast about histories and race and racism because (laughs) uh, now it's a great time to jump into our topic for today, which is actually labor. So this is is something that Sergio and I talked a little bit about earlier in the series. In season one, we had a show about what is work and why do you work and what what's a job and what's a career and how do you make a career? And th- that show is very focused on careers as an engineer and our personal stories of how we got here. But uh, in this show, I want to talk a little bit more broadly about wh- where we are, wh- where uh, society is, and especially where American society is, and a little bit where Japanese society is, and what what the future of work is. Because I think that's that's where... It has a lot of political implications. It has a lot of personal implications. And everybody wants to know, like, what wh- what on a personal level are we going to do about work and about our careers? I certainly know that this is probably true for you and a lot of our listeners. My high school career counselors had no, I had no clue whatsoever. <laughs> like, it's like, what, do you want to be like a bank teller? Do you want to be like a gas station attendant? Like, I guess Especially go, in like, Indiana, right? Like in the rural Midwest. <laughs> it's like, if you shoot really high, maybe you'll get to wear a shirt with a collar to work. Right. It was it was so completely designed around. I mean, we even had three career tracks. There was uh, there was college prep. There was well, college prep was the so called was the mainstream uh, career mainstream track. There was a, like uh, AP courses for the kids that were actually going to college, and then there were uh, TP courses, which is like technical prep, which was an entire track within the high school designed for people who would basically. Um, it was kind of unclear where they were going, but I think the idea was uh, mechanics and people working in factories. But yeah, cer- certainly th- those people, I-, I had no idea 10 years ago what job I would be doing today. And my career counselors 15 or 20 years ago had no idea what job I would be doing today. And I think there's a lot of uncertainty about like, like, like now, like, are we going to be the people where everybody was saying, oh, they should have been doing their continuing education courses 10 years ago? Or like, are we going to have a job in 10 years? So with that, uh, so, so Courtney, wh- why are you thinking about labor these days? I'm thinking about labor a lot right now in my own life because I'm uh, I'm writing my dissertation and I'd been in Indiana for six years and just got to the point where um, I should say that I'm a very, uh, in, in old vernacular, I'm a butch lesbian, <laughs> I'm a very masculine woman. And I was living in an area where that was sometimes a very challenging identity to have. I wasn't always welcome in all the spaces I tried to enter. I was in mm. Indiana when our current vice president, Mike Pence, was the governor uh, and actually passed a law making it okay for... Uh, businesses to not serve visibly queer folks. So I could go into, um, there was a pizza place, very notably, that Mm. uh, refused to serve gay people if they could figure out you were gay. That's always (laughs) (laughs) a million dollar question. So anyway, the point is that I I was just tired of being in that atmosphere. And I will say that 99% of businesses, the great thing about 
legislation like that is there's an mm. enormous backlash. Almost every business in downtown Indianapolis had a giant rainbow sticker in the window saying all are welcome. So it felt like mm. everywhere was much more gay than it had felt before, which was lovely. Um, but my mm. partner and I decided to move down to Austin, Texas. It's a place I lived about 10 years ago that I've always felt very comfortable. Uh, I love the culture here. I love the it's one of those spaces that's been kind of a meeting place and mixing plates of lots of different kinds of folks from different places. Mm-hmm. It's one of those queer diasporic cities where folks from the surrounding area who weren't necessarily as comfortable in their small towns have moved here. It's also mm-hmm. increasingly becoming a tech hub. And it's interesting. We can talk later about how the tech culture is changing um, aspects of Austin's culture in really notable and kind of stark ways. Mm-hmm. So I am, um, at this point in time, trying to both write a dissertation, which is a very consuming, uh, emotionally laborious process, mm. and then also work uh, 30 or 40 hours a week at a job that will keep me financially afloat. Right. Wow, 30 to 40 hours. That is a lot of work in a week. Yeah, that's the, well, 40 hours is the standard American work week um, <laughs> <laughs> that the labor the labor movement won for us. We used to work considerably more i think 50 or 60 used to be much more the average Mm. um but um yeah so i'm thinking a lot too about um i actually want to find work that i do during the day that's not very emotionally intensive that i don't feel very connected Mm. to or invested in which is funny because i think that's the opposite problem that a lot of folks have they want to find work that's meaningful or enjoyable. Right. I mean, we, we talked about one of the tropes of the 90s earlier, which was multiculturalism. And I think the other sort of trope of the 90s and growing up in the 90s is that it's like, what should you do? What should you do what you're passionate about? Exactly. Follow your dreams. Follow your passion. <laughs> yeah. Like, don't be a doctor. Don't be a lawyer. You can make $150,000 a year, like, you know, making flower creations. <laughs> exactly. Just go on MTV. There's, there's something for everyone. Right. <laughs> The, the 90s are actually cool. Anyway. <laughs> okay, so, so you're actually, you're, you're in the labor market and you're looking actually for a kind of mindless job that doesn't pay too badly. Yeah, I actually am I'm starting training for a job tomorrow at a local grocery store that's kind of a upscale, uh, bourgeois, small local chain. And I'm going to be working at the, mm-hmm. cheese, the cheese counter, which is great because, well, A, because I'm mildly lactose intolerant. <laughs> Uh, and Perfect. B, cheese is this great emblem of everything I've been thinking about because it's this peasant food. It's basically fermenting milk so milk doesn't go bad that's become incredibly um, classed in a way where you can talk about cheese all day long in all kinds of foreign languages right, and right. make it really inaccessible. And Right. It's, it's wine and cheese. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Cheese is peasant food. Yeah, it sure is. It's... Uh, I remember I was living uh, one summer in Richmond, actually, I was living with a guy who Mm. grew up Mennonite and we got some unpastured milk from a local dairy and he made uh, a food he'd made growing up called schmierkäse. 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 Yeah, you skim the cream off the top of the milk and you kind of wad it into a cheesecloth bag and hang it on the porch for a few days and it makes a kind of funky cream (sighs) cheese. Wow. Wow. Uh, yeah. Jerrica, our, our uh, guest from last week, I believe, was uh, wondering about how to make cream cheese the other day. So, yeah, problem solved. Yeah, just Google schmierkäse. <laughs> I just need some unpasteurized milk in Shinjuku. So, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, okay. So, so you're thinking about labor a lot. So, what, what's sort of the what? What do you want to say about labor? I think one of the there's actually a few different. It's sort of a 
a wheel with a few different spokes that I, I keep thinking mm. about and jumping from spoke to spoke. Um, mm. I think a lot, always, I think a lot about alienation, um, mm-hmm. which is one of those great ideas that Marx came up with for all the ways that he was a giant jerk. He was also kind of brilliant <laughs> <laughs> in picking apart capitalism. Um, mm-hmm. I went through and I made a list of every job I'd ever had the other day, and it was a little over 20 jobs, you know, just from all oh, the wow. stuff you do, like in high school the stuff you do hourly like up through jobs i've had with health insurance there were only four jobs i've ever had out of that whole list that had health insurance which is another thing wow. you'll, that really uh, i think underscores how the u.s operates i've had health insurance probably for well i've had it four years of grad school um and other than that maybe like three years total mm. in my life so i'm in my mid-30s and not had it for most of that time wow yeah wow um Sorry, I've just got to stop you. So what, no. what do you do if you don't have health insurance? Uh, you try not to get sick. Um, you okay. do, do a lot of preventative work if you're me. A lot of folks can't do that um, because mm-hmm. they don't have the time or the resources. But basically just try not to get mm-hmm. sick is number one. And then if you do get sick, um, usually the resources you depend upon are things like urgent care. Because um, mm. you can go there, kind of get whatever you have. Uh, you're basically always fixing symptoms. You're never really doing anything to look at root causes. There's no um, mm. medicalized preventative care. Um, so if you like break a bone, you go to urgent care, or go to an emergency room. If you go to an ER, I actually had my appendix burst mm. while I did not have oh health insurance. And that's about a $20,000 procedure. Um, <sighs> and wow. I was living in Ohio at the time and I had the state covered half of it so they took 10 10 grand which was great wow Um, and then everything else is broken down by you have like a bill from the radiologist you have a bill from the anesthesiologist you have all these different little bills that are a few hundred dollars each so So, it's not it's not one ten thousand dollar bill from the hospital it's a bunch of different bills from different sort of like contractors almost exactly who all happen to work physically in the hospital yeah precisely uh, and other hospitals may have worked this differently. This was a private hospital. I had, um, mm. I'd asked my mother to take me to the local uh, university hospital, which would have been much cheaper. But um, she's actually herself very, um, mm. because of her own notions of class and race, wanted me to go to the nicer hospital that she thought of as being somehow like cleaner mm. or more efficient or basically had more white doctors. Um, and that mm. ended up being much more expensive. But anyway, so this, yeah, so you call each of the different creditors. You say, hey, I'm, mm. at the time I was unemployed, um, can you take a percentage off? Can we work out a payment plan? And then you mm-hmm. eventually, some of them just dropped the bills entirely, which was fantastic. Um, wow. I, I ended up with about $7,000 I owed. And then you just, each month, send each of those people, you know, 25, 50, 100 bucks until wow. you've, you've got it paid down. And if you can't do that, then you just basically it all goes on your credit report. You have a much lower credit rating. And then after seven years, they go away. Wow. Wow. That's so incredible. I mean, the, the only, wow. Um, where to go from there? I mean, the, the only time I've ever had to do something like that was uh, probably, it, it was a few years ago, right? When I, I'd stopped working to go back to school and this wasn't about health insurance. This was about um, uh, local tax where uh, your your local tax is based on your previous year's income. And basically, I went from a pretty, pretty good salary to um, a student, like a small scholarship stipend. And it was like, wow, this tax bill that I need to pay this month is like more than half of my entire monthly budget. 
Um, so, so, but you know, again, it was, it was that thing where I went into local office and I was like, Hey, um, this is not going to work. And they're like, Oh, well, let's just divide this up into like 64 parts and you can just pay it, uh, over the next 64 months. And, uh, probably next year your income's not going to be so high. So you won't have another tax bill on top of that. But, but I mean, when you talk about $7,000 or out back from $10,000 back down from $20,000 like imagine if you got a $20,000 raise like that would be a big big raise for a lot of people and just to like you know one day you're walking along fine healthy whatever next day your appendix burst and you have like the opposite of a $20,000 raise <laughs> and there's like it's like who has 20,000 extra dollars sitting around just that they're not spending yeah, I think basically no one, especially if you're, it's that catch-22 of if you're low income in a way where you don't have insurance, then you also don't have savings and don't have resources and don't have assets that would allow you to pay for that. Um, and I mean, with the Affordable Health Care Act that has changed in mm. some significant ways, and most folks I know, especially people that have like small children or chronic health problems, you can get much more affordable insurance through the marketplace, at least in the near future, you still can. And so the the AHA, uh, Affordable Care Act, the ACA, is mm -hmm. uh, the Obamacare. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. The um, And it's the U.S. attempting to have socialized health care, but because we're so profoundly capitalist in our ideologies, we couldn't get it together to have just single-payer health insurance like most other post-industrial companies have, or <laughs> that's so telling. <laughs> countries have. Countries, not companies, even though they're similar in many ways. Yeah, so they're these these crazy little. It, it's one of these things where it's like, um, I don't know. You take your economics one on one course, and they're like, well, okay, so here's the market, and here's like the supply and demand, and so you know, okay, well, here's the price of grain, and if everybody has like this uh, identical commodity that goes around the price of the grain, blah blah blah. Like, obviously, if we have this little market, like the market sets the price of grain efficiently, and it's it's a it's a beautiful story, and it it works very well on like. Uh, oil, grains, industrial commodities, you know, yeah. true, true commodities. But uh, for things like individualized healthcare, um, I mean, I guess I, it seems as though the ACA has managed to pull something out, which is pretty impressive, but it's not sort of the solution one would sort of immediately jump to. Exactly, yeah. It essentially just forces all individuals to enter into contracts with private companies to purchase healthcare from them. And it makes the market much more democratic and that there's many more options. Many are much more affordable. There are requirements about the sort of level of care that they're required to provide. So a few of them can mm. be kind of those scammy, I have health insurance in name only health insurance situations, which you get a lot mm. with car insurance. You can get car insurance that's very, very cheap that essentially is just legally the stamp. I have car insurance, but if you actually get in an accident, mm. they, they're like, pretend they don't know you. <laughs> um, <laughs> So health insurance That's a very is much, special type of car insurance. Yes, exactly. Um, health insurance is much better in that regard, but still it isn't the sort of system where you don't have to worry about it. Like if I were living in Sweden and I wanted to go get a job that was 15 hours a week where I was just paying my minimum bills um, and making mm. minimum wage, I still wouldn't have to worry about health insurance because I would just have it from the state and not have to think about it, uh, which is not the case in the U.S. Mm. It, it, it's so funny how this this like, okay, it's like, okay, we're going to talk about labor. But you can't talk about labor without exactly. talking about health insurance, without talking about race, without talking about all these other, without talking about history, without talking about how we got here. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, 
yes, we it's like can how narrow like how narrowly can we talk about labor without actually talking about all these other things? It's true. Yeah. When get back to my point earlier, maybe this will help us if I circle back and close the circle a little, <laughs> okay. which I'm feel free to incite me to do because I'm bad at doing it, I guess, especially this morning for some reason. Um, <laughs> out of all those jobs I'd had, the only ones that I'd been invested in, the way that that kind of 90s ideology incites you to do is uh, DJing, which I used to do at a, some small bars around Indiana, and then teaching. Those are the two things that I actually mm. care about and enjoy and have a passion for and have also made money doing. Um, mm. But other than those two, there's been this divide my whole life of the things I care about and enjoy and have passion for, and then the things you do to make money. Those have ne'er the twain shall meet. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. It's passion, passion and work. It's it, it's great if it can happen. I mean, in, in my job, in my life. So let's see, I've had you know th- random jobs in school and whatnot. I would say. The first job that I actually had that I actually had passion for was actually working at the Apple store in Ginza. Um, You know, I'd had some pretty good jobs that I didn't really mind before that. You know, I learned a lot and they were interesting to me. But, you know, yes, I know Apple is like an $800 billion corporation. And yes, I was working retail, but I I really I I was working in the, the Genius Bar area as an FRS. And, you know, these people would come in and they would need help. And it was like, okay, they would have like this iPhone or whatever, and I could help them. And it was like, it was one of these things where it's like, okay, I wasn't changing the world. I wasn't doing anything incredible, but it was like, literally at the end of the day, there were a number of people that I I really felt like I helped. And that was, that was very, very powerful to me. And the, uh, the, the, the environment there was, it, it was an amazing environment. So yes, it, massive corporation but uh it was also sort of the first job that i really had a lot of passion about and then actually probably the second job is the job that i'm doing now so i'm working at a startup and one of the things that i really like about the startup that i work for is that we have what i think is a non-exploitative business model so we we have this business model that doesn't rely on advertising it doesn't rely on selling the privacy of users it relies on providing this service and it's it's a great group of people. I enjoy doing the work, and I feel that it's is it meaningful. It could be a lot less meaningful. It's uh, I would say yes, it's meaningful. That's great. I love that metric. It could be a lot less meaningful. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you got to find meaning in wherever you are. Like you know, it's you know, even if you're in some random crappy job, like you know, no, it's true. Get get together your coworkers, meet some people, for, form the local gay club at the company or whatever you know yeah totally and i think that's um really a vital thing that a lot of jobs do for folks is it provides human interaction you know your coworkers, you spend most of your waking hours with more than you do your family or mm. than you do other loved ones so if you have great coworkers or people that you enjoy seeing every day that makes an enormous difference in your quality of life oh it totally does like at some of my previous jobs you know there'd be like maybe one coworker that i'd regularly go to lunch with but at this job it's like every single day it's like oh my god who do I go to lunch with? I want to go to lunch with all these people all at once. And it's like, oh, now we have six people and there's eight people going to lunch. And now, now we're, we can't find a seat anywhere. But then I didn't even get to talk to this other person. It's like, oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> you guys need to get some catering. <laughs> <laughs> no, then then we'll become like, we'll become like, like Google and I don't know, yeah. have like lots of stuff. 
Okay. Uh, are, are we actually going to talk about labor? <laughs> yeah. No, we, we, we're this entire okay. time we've been talking about labor. It's all under the umbrella, which is another thing I think I wanted uh-huh. to talk about. Another one of those spokes that I've been thinking about with labor, mm. which is if you try to think about labor outside of capitalism. And again, just when I use the word capitalism, I know I can sound like either a right wing conspiracy theorist or a left wing tree hugger. But just mm. factually talking about capitalism as the structure that we all live under. Everyone, in, well, mm-hmm. I, when I say all of us, everyone in the U.S., I think probably, would you say Japan, would you describe it as capitalist? J- Japan is actually very interesting. Um, uh, years ago, I had a, a former co-worker uh, who, uh, whose family was from the Soviet Union, and he actually had uh, this interesting thing that he had said about Japan. He said that Japan is like communism if communism worked. So... Yes, Japan is a capitalist society, but it's also it's regulated in ways that make it very, very different from, uh, for especially the U.S. So there, there's very big in in the same way that, for example, giant banks in the U.S. won't fail in Japan. There, there are many big companies that employ lots and lots of people, and those companies, their role, like like their their role is. In some ways, it's to make products and to make things and to be capitalist entities. But in some ways, the role of these companies are also to employ a very large workforce. Th- their goal is not simply to provide profits for their owners. Their goal is to provide some profits for their owners, make some good things, and employ people in good jobs that last a long time. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, and that meshes with I think on a really profoundly cultural level, it seems like in Japan, there's much more of an emphasis on the collective good and on um, the work that you do, the labor you do for society or for your community or for you know your neighbors, your neighborhood, your family, those sorts of things. Whereas in the U.S., there's mm. a profound emphasis on the individual. What can you do for yourself? The phrase "looking mm. out for number one," um, even if you <laughs> what what does what does looking out for number one mean? Does, is this like number one, number two? Is this like a, a poop thing? <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, it's uh, you're number one. You the uh, the individual, the okay. first person singular is always number one. And you, so even if you, you know, sort of if I start a company with my brother, but I can make a huge profit by selling my half of the company and screwing my brother over, you know, I made a big profit and that makes me a good person. Looking out for number one. Yeah. Um, profit is very highly valued and those social ties are much less so. So if you decide you want to uh, outsource all of your labor and you want to close down mm. your shoe factory that's made Chuck Taylors in the Carolinas for you know, the past 75 years and get mm. that to Nike so they can open a factory in Thailand or Vietnam, you're making a huge profit. You're adding a lot of value to the company. You're doing a good job. Mm. Um, and I say all that very mm. sarcastically. I think that those are actually terribly unethical things <laughs> to do. But, um, <laughs> well, I mean, but, but, but then, then there's the question, like, I mean, you know, those people in Vietnam did get jobs. So there's a, a documented incident in the 90s. Let's let's keep talking about the 90s. It's, it's a throwback <laughs> episode okay. of Harajuku Data Lake, um, <laughs> where a factory worker in, actually in Vietnam, uh, I believe, was in a Nike factory, a factory making Nike shoes, I should say, was killed mm-hmm. by a piece of shrapnel. A piece of the machine broke off, flew across the room and mm. went through her chest and killed her. And mm. when asked uh, for a quote about this, Nike literally responded with, we don't make shoes. That was their direct quote. Oh, what what did they mean by that? 
They mean by that that they um, that labor was all subcontracted, which I think is really the true definition of a sweatshop. They didn't own that factory. They didn't actually even have a direct relationship with that factory. They'd requested another factory in the area. Mm. They'd contracted them to make the shoes, and that factory uh, subcontracted out the labor to other less regulated factories to reduce the profit margin even more. Mm. And so I think in Nike's worldview, they do marketing, they do design, they do engineering. They don't actually manufacture shoes. That's not the business they're in. Right. So it's uh, brand marketing and contract manufacturing. Exactly. Which is actually a, a, a very, very successful model in um, certain other industries, like information <laughs> technology. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, that's essentially... Um, as a consumer in the U.S., I, I have a personal um, mm. mission, like part of my own personal ethics as someone who studied and wrote about sweatshops and taught about sweatshops mm-hmm. fairly extensively. Uh, I try not to buy anything made using subcontracted labor. And that's the I don't even mm. ask about like how long do your employees work? What are the working conditions like? Do you have child labor? Is your labor subcontracted? Because I think that's really the heart mm. of the problem of where people get screwed over. I'm sure in the IT industry just as much as in um goods manufacturing <laughs> okay well i i w- there there is this there's this bizarre thing in the it industry of um boy i'm not even sure how i'm gonna edit this episode because we're all over the place but uh <laughs> but while we're here let's just go for it uh th- there's this there's this caste system within it companies of direct employees versus contractors mm-hmm. and it's it's completely bizarre because uh, I've seen it at a number of different companies that I've worked for where there are the full-time employees that get to say that they work for the company and have the full benefits and get treated with the respect of people that are going somewhere and will get promoted within the company. And then there are these, there's this sort of class of workers that can work for years at, at a particular company. Um, you know, they are with that company the entire time. It's, you know, they work in the same office, the same physical office. They do often uh, very similar jobs. Uh, they typically are not in management roles, but they might be like, they might be managing a few people on the team, if not uh, several levels up in management. And they also, since they may be doing uh, a lot of the technical implementation of things, they may be the most knowledgeable about knowledgeable about how the actual systems that the company sells works so there's this sort of like caste system of contractors that is very very bizarre and it's completely problematic and it happens in the u.s and in japan and uh it's very strange yeah and that sounds very similar that you're it's a way of sort of denying that paternal responsibility for employees that you were describing those companies and larger companies in japan have Mm. they're uh they're there uh, to make things and do things, but they're also there to provide quality of life and peace of mind for the folks that want to work mm. in a job for 20, 30, 40 years and have loyalty to the, to the company that's reciprocated and the company will have loyalty to them and ensure that they're taken care of. Uh, contracting is a way kind of out, out of that relationship. Uh, it's a way to have folks who just do the things you need, deliver the goods, deliver the services, and then you can abdicate responsibility toward their quality of life or their well-being as human beings. Mm. The, the, the best situation I've seen is situations where um, one company hires another company and then that company has a bunch of full-time employees that they take care of that work on a project. But sort of the, the flip side of that is where it's one company is hiring an individual who is there, but they're treated as though they are a machine 
And it's、mm-hmm. just it at at the end, you know. No matter how nice you are to these people, at the very end of the day, there's this kind of bizarre subtext that they are there by contract to act as a machine, and that they don't have that they they can't be treated with the same humanness that you would a regular employee. Exactly. I and that's yeah, that's really striking to me. Think about um. When I'm teaching, I often start my class by asking folks to define the word dignity. So, I'll actually, ask you, what is your definition of dignity? Well, what is my definition of dignity? So how would you, <laughs> if I was asking you, just like, hey, I've, <sighs> I've encountered this word I haven't encountered before. How, what does dignity mean? Oh my god,、um, what is dignity? It is. Oh, I'm, I'm even going to phrase this as a question because I'm not quite <laughs> sure. But is dignity about having self-respect, like、uh, respect for yourself as an individual and as a human? That's great. Yeah, the I think the the two words that come up a lot when I ask like my group of forty students. So you、mm-hmm. got there with just yourself and not thirty nine people helping you.、Um, I'm safe. <laughs> yeah, are respect and pride.、Oh. And the the word dignity. It's actually one of the many words in English with a Latin root, and it comes、mm. from it、uh, means worth. It's your worth as an individual,、mm. which again is kind、mm. of a perhaps it can be. It also has、uh, connections to the word for weight. So how much do you weigh? How much? What's the kind of weight、mm. of your worth? Um, so again, connections to、uh, evaluation, which can be kind of capitalist, but also just thinking about how much are these people worth in this organization? Are they worth sort of the full humanness?、Uh, are they worth a human being? Or are they worth a machine? You know, we're gonna have some folks that are worth less than being human. They're they're the equivalent of a machine, and we'll treat them and take care of them that way. Right, and and just to like give sort of a managerial perspective on how that relationship works is that if you're a people manager, you really have to think about how it, you have to think of your employees not as machines, but as people with lives, careers, motivations, and as a people manager, the big thing that you have to think about today is. How do you how do you help these people advance in their careers? Almost to the extent that you don't even have to think about their careers within the company. You have to say, how can you help these people advance their careers and hopefully at the same time do really productive work in your company? And with an outsourced contractor, it's a completely different question. The question is, am I paying X thousands of dollars per month? Am I getting enough value out of it? It's a very transactional. Like I give you this. You give me that. Is that worth this to me? Is that worth that that to you? Yeah, I think that's a really useful framework for thinking about it because you kind of think about it as two different kinds of investments.、Mm. And in one, your investment is really just、um, I'm going to give you money, and you're going to give me this、uh, code that I need or this object,、uh, and that's、mm. the extent of our relationship. And it can be very unsustainable. I'm going to make you work 80 hours a week for three weeks to give me this code, and then.、Mm. I don't care that you haven't seen your kids or haven't been outside for three weeks.、Um, right, and, and you, you、yeah. can't care because that's not your purview. You you are not managing them. You are contracting them. Exactly. If you, if, the, if, if you were if they were actually your employee and you were managing them, you have to care about whether they've seen your kids and you have to care how much they're working. With the contracting relationship, everything is different. So, <laughs> boy, this is a depressing episode.、Uh, th- that said, there are. You know, one one of the things that I, I have seen people that 
I mean, you, you said earlier that you were looking for a kind of mindless job that you can do without personal investment. Mm-hmm. And when I have seen people who have worked very successfully in these kind of independent contractor worlds, often for years, it's because they, they enjoy, in a sense, almost the stability of of having that, knowing that they they are given this money for this very specific, well-defined thing that they are providing. Uh, being an, a successful employee in a larger company often involves navigating all these different personal dynamics of how does the company work? How is your career in the company working? Are you aligning your career with the, with the larger goals of the company? Uh, should you stay with this company? Whereas with a contracting role, it's very, very clear that, you know, it's like, I give you a potato, you give me $5. Like, <laughs> I, okay, I know potatoes don't cost $5. Thank you, people. Really nice ones. <laughs> Yeah, it's gonna be. It's a very nice potato. No, I think that's a really good point, Morris. Too is that um, I definitely often get caught up in the kind of ethics of contract work. But for some folks, that's what they want. They want that relationship where they don't have an emotional investment, and the company doesn't have the reciprocated emotional mm. investment. Um, those that can be really unnerving for some people. It can be counterproductive. Uh, it can be just not what they're looking for. If you think about it in those terms, it's some folks really appreciate just being able to do the thing, get it done, get their money, and not have to worry about having a supervisor mm-hmm. that's um, worried about the long-term sustainability of their work habits. Right. Like, like, uh, and I think especially you know one of the the, the good and the, good and the bad parts of these large paternal companies in Japan is that they traditionally, especially, are very very involved in the personal lives of their workers. Like. Uh, you will live in the company-owned dorm with all your all the other people working at the company. You might marry somebody working at the company. You, you'll build your entire life around this company, and it's it's kind of invasive. So, uh, I, I've worked in one of these sort of um, a, as a contractor before in the past, and a lot of my coworkers, we were all the cool kids in the company because we were all the, all the kids who then like who'd like studied abroad or came to the company with really weird experiences like you know went to a couple years of like fashion school and then did this other thing and then this other thing and then picked up programming and whatever and like all the cool kids ended up, be, ended up being the contractors and yes they were they were paid a lot less but they also sort of had they they were paid a decent amount of money and they in a sense had a little bit more freedom of being relieved from the social pressures of a gigantic oppressive paternal organization so i i kind of want to I want to go down this path a little bit because I want to talk about not dream jobs that are your true passion, but these kind of like uh, th- the importance of not really great labor, like like the importance of jobs that could be automated, but aren't like the importance mm-hmm. of, you know, a- a- as societies, we have a bunch of people and these people have to live and they have to live decent lives. They have to eat. They have to have shelter. They have to have clothing. And <laughs> I know this is like a, a common debate point, whether they actually have to have these things or not. But uh, if we agree on that starting point, like maybe every single person does not need to be doing th- their true passion, but maybe there is a role of these kind of like random kind of crappy jobs in the economy. I think you're you're kind of pointing out... Um... It's one of those fault lines that divide socialist and capitalist ideology, I sh- right? Am I a socialist? <laughs> I, I embrace it, Morris. <laughs> no, I don't want to vote for Bernie Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to vote for Bernie Sanders. I'll relieve you of that burden. But um, <laughs> this, I think it's a fundamental question of if we have this work that can be automated, 
Say that we automate everything that can be automated, and then there's enough work left for everyone in the state of Texas, where I'm living right now, to work uh, a four-hour a four-hour day every day. That's half the current workday. They're working 20 hours a week, five days a week, or just like two and a half days a week. Some folks will say, well, that's awful. What will people do? And the real question is, is there, we've automated all this work. There's still enough money in the economy for these folks to, mm. um, they can just work, you know, 20 hours a week and still have enough money for food and shelter and leisure. Um, do we just give people money to be alive? That's what, you know, a socialist uh, state would do. Mm. Or um, are these people SOL because now there's just not enough labor for them and they don't have enough money and they have to move somewhere else and find jobs or create new industries or create new uh, new ways of making money? What does SOL mean? Shit out of luck. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you uh, for our American cultural perspective. <laughs> SOL, shit out of luck. Um, yeah, and I think that goes to something that uh, Ben Thompson brings up a lot on his podcast, which is this idea that by definition... Uh, automation and technology replace labor. Like that's what they do. When you automate your cron job, when you create a script that does something repetitive, that re that automates a repetitive task, that is replacing labor. And ultimately, when you when you have technology replacing labor, it's the people. We have the situation where the the owners of the te that technology are accruing all the all the benefits. So. I think what you know, if we run into the situation where okay, everybody in Texas only needs to work twenty hours a week, um, because of automation and advances in technology, but all all the profits from those advances have ha have accumulated in a very very small yeah, go ahead, small say area. It. <laughs> so so like so this is this weird thing. It's like well, so what do we do? And okay, I I know the Hacker News perspective on this is the idea of the basic income, which uh, I know you called it a socialist idea. I'm sorry, Courtney. It's actually like the ultra most capitalist libertarian idea ever. But <laughs> I think they got it from somewhere else. I think they got it from Marx, Morris. It's an old idea, right? It's yeah, yes. The truth is, we just have to call it Trump Care, and then we'll have universal. <laughs> I know, right? Payer healthcare, That's, but anyway, yeah, but yeah, like it's, it's like this. So, so I think the idea of universal basic income is that as a human, uh, as a as a human in a society, you get to have a little bit of the chunk of the society. Maybe you don't get to be rich, but you get to have well, a little bit. That's what well, I mean. In true Marxism, the workers, the people, like the 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 Volk, own the means of production. So, in mm. this, if it were a true socialist setup, then everything's automated and you know we're earning profits off of the automation or the profits we're earning is simply the benefit of working less but instead of mm -hmm. that money becoming stratified and the um all of the benefits going to the small concentrated area they just sort of are spread evenly among the folks that would make it a true socialist state mm -hmm. versus this mm -hmm. basic income where maybe a lot of that money is being uh stratified and going up into a very small pool at the top um but then mm -hmm some of it's being spread around and uh, maybe like there is single payer healthcare, but you don't get anything toward like your shelter, your home being paid for. Okay. So what you're saying is that because a lot of it still can accumulate to that 1%, we still can have free massages at the company. Yeah, exactly. That's still pure capitalism. No need to worry about that. Okay. As, as long as we can live in like an idealized, like uh, idealized playground with free massages and free gourmet sushi. Um, That'll be awesome. Yeah. There's plenty of fish in the ocean. They're never going to run out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, <laughs> that's a that different topic. Sarcastic. Uh, okay. So final thoughts. 
this has been an episode where we've talked about a lot of different random (laughs) things we've gone in all kinds of circles so i'm sorry to our listeners for being all over the place courtney needs a handler i'm sorry everyone i no 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 i i really want to have you back because i want to talk i'm just like I, I want to talk about being a butch lesbian and gender identity, and I want to talk about gay culture, and I want to talk about Marxism, and I want to talk about race in America, and I want to talk about labor, and there are all these like super important things that I want to talk about, and unfortunately, we are already coming up to like an hour. <laughs> so, oh God. Uh, any 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 final thoughts? Um, I mean, I guess for me, the thing I come back to is that I live in the US. I am deeply entrenched in the very belly of capitalism. I'm not going to escape it in my lifetime. So just trying to think creatively about ways that I can earn a living and mm. um, prolong my, you know, my well-being and extend my quality of life, but also do it in ways that isn't on the backs of folks in lower positions than I am and do it in mm. ways that sustains me. How can I find work that is in a long-term way pleasurable um, but also not harmful Um, Mm. so just trying to think creatively about that and trying to look out for situations like that or find examples of people that do that those are the the things that i kind of hold on to and keep my eye out for yeah i think i think it's so important to find this space where you're you are comfortable with what you do and i think something that the technology world has really kind of awoken to and especially in the past year is like the moral and ethical and societal implications of what we do as engineers and understanding that what we do in the world has these secondary and tertiary impacts that aren't necessarily, it's like we aren't, you know, it's like Mark Zuckerberg starts 2016 saying, you know, we are going to cure all disease in the entire world. And we end 2016 with like, oops, I guess we kind of elected Trump as president. But, um, It's it, we're starting to wake up to this, and I think it, it's a, it's finding that space, finding that space within this in this system that you can do, you can be productive, that you can create things, that you can contribute things, and that you can do things in such a way that they aren't exploitative, that they aren't you you are you're creating new value for the world, value that you hopefully get some of yourself that doesn't take that isn't it, it it's it's not take. It's not simply usurping that value from somebody else. Yeah, and some would argue that under capitalism, that's impossible. Grow the pie, Courtney. We've got to grow the pie. But who's growing it, Morris? <laughs> I'm growing it. Did you see my like? Uh, <laughs> I I put fifty dollars into Facebook ads. <laughs> <laughs> I would consider that growing the growing the pie for Facebook. <laughs> Oh god. Okay. Okay. That's great. Sorry. Uh well, not enough oxygen in the room anymore. So I definitely want to have you back to talk explore these topics more. And uh to all our listeners out there, thank you so much for uh listening through this like all over the place episode. But if there are any topics in here that kind of uh perked your interest that you'd like to hear us talk a little bit more about, there's a lot more there. So definitely like, follow, and subscribe on all your favorite social media and uh let us know how we did. And uh, please, please don't be too mean. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me, Morris. This is really uh, wonderful and enjoyable to talk about all of this with you. Oh, I'm so glad you could be on. I, I, I need to have you back. Great. Let's do it.